European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance. Volume 44, Issue 19. Focus Issue, Ischemic Heart Disease. By Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. Ischemic Heart Disease. From the celebration of Hebiden's description of angina pectoris, to novel therapeutic targets for angiogenesis and myocardial fibrosis. This focus issue on ischemic heart disease contains a viewpoint article entitled Reprising Hebiden's Description of Angina Pectoris After 250 Years. William Bowden and colleagues from the Boston University School of Medicine and Harvard Medical School in Massachusetts, USA, remind us that in 1772, four years after his initial description of angina pectoris, William Hebiden published his seminal account of this clinical disorder which remarkably has stood the test of time despite profound developments in the diagnosis and management of ischemic heart disease, particularly during the last half century. Bowden and colleagues note, in their excellent overview, that the paradigm that obstructive coronary artery disease, or CAD, is synonymous with angina pectoris and myocardial ischemia needs to be reconsidered because it's not universally applicable to the larger, more unselected universe of individuals presenting with stable angina in whom flow-limiting coronary stenoses are often not present. Perhaps this 250th anniversary of Hebiden's original description of angina may represent an opportunity to reprise this syndrome with a renewed recognition that the clinical manifestations of ischemia are protein and that non-obstructive causes are common yet remain underappreciated. We must also recognise that knowledge of the precise mechanisms of ischemia due to either epicardial coronary stenoses or non-obstructive causes may lead to more personalised antianginal treatment, which offers the hope of substantially improving symptoms and quality of life in a broader population of patients with Hebiden's angina in the 21st century. In a viewpoint article entitled Primordial Non-Responsiveness, a Neglected Obstacle to Cardioprotection. Gerd Heusch and colleagues from the University of Essen Medical School in Germany note that there is still a need for cardioprotection beyond that by rapid reperfusion, because one-year mortality after reperfused acute myocardial infarction is still greater than 10%, and the incidence of post-infarct heart failure is still approximately 20-30%. to 30%. The author's contribution deals with immediate cardioprotection, as defined by reduced infarct size and coronary microvascular obstruction, which are the major determinants of further clinical outcome. When clinical follow-up endpoints such as mortality and development of post-infarct heart failure are considered, the relevant pathophysiological processes which determine cardiac geometry and function also include inflammation, healing, remodeling, adverse and reverse, with consequent fibrosis, cardiomyocyte hypertrophy, and angiogenesis, and the confounders are then even more complex. Nevertheless, in the author's view, primordial non-responsiveness to cardioprotection is a serious confounder that deserves recognition and attention in further preclinical and clinical studies. Primordial non-responsiveness to cardioprotection may be of particular importance when it comes to personalized medicine.
Perioperative myocardial infarction stroke injury, or PMI, is a clinically relevant event. In a clinical research article entitled Long-Term Outcomes of Perioperative Myocardial Infarction Stroke Injury After Non-Cardiac Surgery, Christian Poulacher and colleagues from the University of Basel in Switzerland note that a better understanding of the etiologies and outcomes of PMI following non-cardiac surgery is urgently needed. Etiologies of PMIs detected with an active surveillance and response program was centrally adjudicated by two independent physicians, based on all information obtained during clinically indicated PMI workup, including cardiac imaging among consecutive high-risk patients undergoing major non-cardiac surgery in a prospective multicenter study. PMI etiologies were hierarchically classified into extracardiac if caused by a primarily extracardiac disease such as severe sepsis or pulmonary embolism, and cardiac, further subtyped into type 1 myocardial infarction or T1MI, tachyarrhythmia, acute heart failure or AHF, or likely type 2 myocardial infarction or LT2MI. Major adverse cardiac events or MACEs, including acute MI or AMI, AHF, both only from day 3 to avoid inclusion bias, life-threatening arrhythmia and cardiovascular death as well as all-cause death were assessed during one-year follow-up. Among 7,754 patients, aged 45 to 98 years, 45% women, PMI occurred in 13.1% of patients. At least one MACE occurred in 8.8% of patients and 10.5% of patients died within one year. Outcomes differed starkly according to etiology. In patients with extracardiac PMI, T1MI, tachyarrhythmia, AHF and LT2MI, 51, 41, 57, 64 and 25% had MACE and 38, 27, 40, 49 and 17% of patients died within one year respectively, compared with 7% and 9% in patients without PMI. These associations persisted in multivariable analysis. Huelacher et al. conclude that at one year, most PMI etiologies have unacceptably high rates of MACE and all-cause death, highlighting the urgent need for more intensive treatments. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Christian Thurson from the Aarhus University Hospital in Denmark and Alan Jaffa from the Mayo Clinic and Medical School in Rochester, Minnesota, USA. Thurson and Jaffa conclude that the authors have done the best they can with the available data. The data substantiate that those with clinical risk factors and a changing pattern of high-sensitivity cardiac troponin, or HSCTNT, should be taken seriously and evaluated extensively because of the high incidence of occurrence of subsequent events. The study does not, however, help with some other potentially high-risk groups, such as those with chronic myocardial injury or those with less robust increases in HSCTN. Clinicians must be aware of this critical caveat. However, if this study pushes others to carry out similar but more extensive evaluations, it will have made a major contribution. First studies are rarely definitive.
Patients with suspected non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome, or NSTE-ACS, are routinely transferred to the emergency department, or ED. A clinical risk score with point-of-care, or POC, troponin measurement might enable ambulance paramedics to identify low-risk patients in whom ED evaluation is unnecessary. In a clinical research article entitled Rule Out of Non-ST Segment Elevation Acute Coronary Syndrome by a Single Pre-Hospital Troponin Measurement, a Randomized Trial. Cyril Camaro and colleagues from the Radboud University Medical Center in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, assess safety and healthcare costs of a pre-hospital rule-out strategy using a POC troponin measurement in low-risk suspected NSTE-ACS patients. This investigator-initiated randomized clinical trial was conducted in five ambulance regions in the Netherlands. Suspected NSTE-ACS patients with HEAR, or history, ECG, age and risk factors, score less than or equal to 3, were randomized to pre-hospital rule-out with POC troponin measurements or direct transfer to the ED. The sample size calculation was based on the primary outcome of 30-day healthcare costs. Secondary outcome was safety, defined as 30-day MACE, consisting of ACS, unplanned revascularization, or all-cause death. A total of 863 participants were randomized. Healthcare cost was significantly lower in the pre-hospital strategy, P being less than 0.001. In the total population, MACE were comparable between groups, 3.9% in pre-hospital strategy versus 3.7% in ED strategy. In the ruled-out ACS population, MACE were very low, 0.5% versus 1.0%. The authors conclude that pre-hospital rule-out of ACS with a POC troponin measurement in low-risk patients significantly reduces healthcare costs, while the incidence of MACE is low in both strategies. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Bruna Gigenci from the Karolinska Institutet in Stockholm, Sweden. Gigenci concludes that an effective, rational and modern use of healthcare resources is highly advocated and needs to be investigated to improve modern clinical practice, as this clinical trial clearly shows. At the same time, a balance must be kept between the old and always actual observatio et ratio and the benefits of automization of clinical decisions. Atherothrombotic events are influenced by systemic hypercoagulability and fibrinolytic activity. In a clinical research article entitled Prognostic Impact of Hypercoagulability and Impaired Fibrinolysis in Acute Myocardial Infarction, Chung Hon Lee and colleagues from the Chonam National University Medical School in the Republic of Korea evaluated thrombogenicity indices and their prognostic implications according to disease acuity. From the consecutive patients undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI, 2,705 with thrombogenicity indices were grouped according to disease acuity, AMI versus non-AMI. Thrombogenicity indices were measured by thromboelastography, or TEG. 
Blood samples for TEG were obtained immediately after insertion of the PCI sheath, and TEG tracing was performed within four hours post-sampling. MACE, a composite of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI and non-fatal stroke, were evaluated for up to four years. Compared with non-AMI patients, AMI patients had higher platelet fibrin clot strength, P being less than 0.001, and lower fibrinolytic activity, P being less than 0.001. The presence of high platelet fibrin clot strength and lower fibrinolytic activity was synergistically associated with MACE occurrence. In the multivariable analysis, the combined phenotype was a major predictor of MACE in the AMI group, P equaling 0.011, but not in the non-AMI group. The authors conclude that AMI occurrence is significantly associated with hypercoagulability and impaired fibrinolysis. Their combined phenotype increases the risk of a post-PCI atherothrombotic event only in AMI patients. These observations may support individualised therapy that targets thrombogenicity for better outcomes in patients with AMI. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Aaron Eiding and colleagues from the Cardiovascular Research Institute Maastricht in the Netherlands. Eiding et al. conclude that it's about time that we make smarter use of laboratory biomarkers for patient management. Cumulative evidence clearly shows that atherothrombosis, although a localised problem, is influenced by the systemic blood compartment. This systemic hypercoagulability, or thrombogenicity if one prefers, is a driver not only of atherosclerosis, but also of thrombosis. They state that we should start phenotyping our patients more carefully, using state-of-the-art methodology to guide a choice of antithrombotic management minimising the individual patient's residual risk of thrombosis and bleeding. Will this require further studies? As always, it will. But we need to be pragmatic too, as not all such efforts can be tested in randomised controlled trials, too large, too expensive, and we need to find ways to embed selected laboratory technology in the framework of management studies. Members of the chromogranin family play a key role in angiogenesis. One such biologically active peptide, generated through the processing of chromogranin A, is vasostatin II. In a translational research article entitled Vasostatin II associates with coronary collateral vessel formation in diabetic patients and promotes angiogenesis via angiotensin-converting enzyme II. Shao Lu Bao and colleagues from the Shanghai Jiaotang University of Medicine in Shanghai in the People's Republic of China aimed at assessing the association of serum vasostatin II levels with coronary collateral vessels, or CCVs, in diabetic patients with chronic total occlusions, or CTOs, and the effects of vasostatin II on angiogenesis in diabetic mice with hind limb or myocardial ischemia. Among 452 diabetic CTO patients, the status of CCVs was categorized according to the Rentrop score. Serum levels of vasostatin II were significantly different and progressively higher across Rentrop score 0, 1, 2 and 3 groups, P being less than 0.001, 
with significantly lower levels in patients with poor CCVs, Rentrop score 0 and 1, than those with good CCVs, Rentrop score 2 and 3, P being less than 0.05. In the experimental part of the study, vasostatin-2 recumbent protein or phosphate-buffered saline were injected intraperitoneally in diabetic mouse models of hind limb or myocardial ischemia, followed by laser Doppler imaging and molecular biology examinations. The effects of vasostatin-2 were also ascertained in endothelial cells and macrophages, with mechanisms clarified using RNA sequencing. Vasostatin-2 significantly promoted angiogenesis in diabetic mice with hind limb or myocardial ischemia. RNA sequencing analyses verified an angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2, mediated vasostatin-2 induction of angiogenesis in ischemic tissues. Bao et al. conclude that lower serum levels of vasostatin-2 are associated with poor CCVs in diabetic CTO patients compared with patients with good CCVs. Vasostatin-2 significantly promotes angiogenesis in diabetic mice with hind limb or myocardial ischemia. Such effects are mediated by ACE2. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Ingrid Fleming from the Goethe University in Frankfurt am Main, Germany. Fleming notes that as impressive as the in vivo effects of vasostatin-2 are, there are a number of open questions. For example, which peptidase is responsible for the generation of vasostatin-2 from chromogranin A, and how is it affected during atherogenesis and or ischemia? Is vasostatin-2 a substrate for ACE2? Moreover, what relationship exists between the different chromogranin A-derived proteins? This is a particularly relevant question given the positive association between pancreastatin and type 1 diabetes and the negative association between vasostatin-2 and type 2 diabetes. Moreover, it should also be noted that the effects described by Bao et al. for vasostatin-2 have also been reported for chromogranin A-derived statin. Indeed, the levels of the latter protein are also decreased in cardiovascular disease, and recumbent statin has been reported to prevent macrophage-driven atherosclerosis in ApoE knockout mice via an as-yet-unidentified mechanism involving the activation of ACE2. Fibrosis is a key pathogenic mechanism of several myocardial diseases. Epicardium and epicardium-derived cells are critical players in myocardial fibrosis. Mesenchymal stem cell, or MSC-derived extracellular vesicles, or EVs, have been studied for cardiac repair to improve cardiac remodeling, but the actual mechanisms remain elusive. In a translational research article, intrapericardial long non-coded RNA, TCF21, antisense RNA inducing demethylation administration promotes cardiac repair. Dashawai Zul and colleagues from the North Carolina State University and University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the USA investigate the mechanisms of EV therapy for improving cardiac remodeling and develop a promising treatment addressing myocardial fibrosis. 
EVs were intrapericardially injected for mice MI treatment. RNA sequencing, in vitro gain and loss of function experiments, and in vivo studies were performed to identify targets that can be used for myocardial fibrosis treatment. Afterwards, a lipid nanoparticle-based long non-coding RNA, or LNC RNA therapy, was prepared for mouse and porcine models of myocardial infarction treatment. Intrapericardial injection of EVs improved adverse myocardial remodeling in mouse models of myocardial infarction. Mechanistically, TCF21 was identified as a potential target to improve cardiac remodeling. Loss of TCF21 function in epicardium-derived cells caused increased myofibroblast differentiation, whereas forced TCF21 overexpression suppressed transforming growth factor beta signaling and myofibroblast differentiation. LNC RNA TCF21 antisense RNA-inducing demethylation, or TARID, that is enriched in EVs, was identified to upregulate TCF21 expression. Formulated LNC RNA TARID-laden lipid nanoparticles, or LNPs, upregulated TCF21 expression in epicardium-derived cells and improved cardiac function and histology in mouse and porcine models of myocardial infarction. The authors conclude that they have identified TCF21 as a critical target for improving cardiac fibrosis. Upregulating TCF21 by using LNC RNA tarid LNPs could be a promising way to treat myocardial fibrosis. Thus, this study establishes novel mechanisms underlying EV treatment for improving adverse remodeling and proposes an LNC RNA therapy for cardiac fibrosis. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Shuikan Wu, Joseph Wu, and Francesca Vacante from the Stanford University School of Medicine in Palo Alto, California, USA. The authors note that Chu and colleagues identified TCF21 as the underlying key regulator of MSC-EV treatment, helping to create a foundation for a novel potential non-coding LNC RNA tarid therapy to mitigate cardiac remodeling following MI. While more work is required to elucidate LMP tarid therapy targets, this study has enhanced our understanding of the translational role of LNC RNAs during cardiac fibrosis and provides a novel therapeutic angle for cardiac repair. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.